Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 192 with my guest, Tracy Thornton. Tracy is a steel drummer, uh, composer, arranger, performer who I met in Trinidad in 2002 uh, when we both played with Phase 2 Pan Groove. And it was nice to connect with him again here. Uh, he has a project called Pan Rocks that has been advocating for um, rock music in Pan, but also just getting young kids involved and uh, through education. Tracy's an amazing guy, a really great community organizer in the field, and um, is someone who's developing close relationships with Trinidadians like Mia Gormandy and um, uh, uh, Yuko Asada, who is not a Trinidadian but was married to Cliff Alexis. Uh, they formed a project called Pan and Unity. That is really great. So I hope you check all those projects out. Uh, I really enjoyed talking with Tracy, and I hope you enjoy this as well. Okay, without further ado, this is my good friend, Tracy Thornton. Enjoy. All right. Well, if you can hear me clearly, I'm rolling here. We will gavel this to order. Tracy Thornton, thank you so much for doing this. I thought about you right before, or actually, I watched a performance of yours, and I'll bet you can't guess what it is right before I logged on. A new one or old one, could I ask? It's an old one. An old one. Man, I don't know. Um, Sons of Steel? <laughs> I'll give you one more guess. Uh, been Caught Stealing. Do What You Want. Phase 2 Pan Groove, 2002. Wow. That's, that's where our roots are, man. I know. And you know who else was in that band? Um, who? Kendall Williams. Kendall Williams, yep. He was in the front line. He was like 12 years old playing lead pan. So was uh, Chuckery. I think he was like 14. Johan Chuckery? Uh-huh. Yeah. it's. Yeah, he was there. His mom used to come to uh, all the rehearsals and stand beside him in the pan yard every night. You know, I played at uh, Kendall's cousin, Jerion Williams. Do you know Jerion? No, uh-uh. Um, if you – he's, in my opinion, one of the best soca drummers, calypso drummers in the world. Um, he plays with Skiffle Bunch and Pan Elders and – but he, he's the drummer for Bungie Garland and Fan Lions right now and wow, down okay. in Trinidad. And – uh, anyway, he, I don't remember what my training thought. What was I? I lost my completely lost my training thought. Just, I thought Jerry on and he's awesome. Um, anyway, I, we were <laughs> listening. Kendall teaches with me now at Princeton. Um, and we were looking through some old performances and, uh, of old panoramas and this one came up and it's just, it's, I wish everybody was as lucky as I was, and I, I don't want to speak for you here, but for me, I'm flabbergasted. Like, I look at things in my life that are sort of sliding door moments, and mm -hmm. I think that three weeks in Trinidad, the number of people I still am in touch with from that very first trip to Trinidad in one way or another is more than almost any other, more than grad school for me, more than so percussion. Like, it's just strange to me that that, that particular time in Trinidad sort of was like there was just a lot of things that were just like plunk 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 and got chunked together that i didn't even realize was going to come to fruition until 20 years later was that was that your first time playing there in trinidad yeah okay yeah that's uh, my first time like that too i have my lifelong friends avis bruce um natasha joseph mm -hmm. all those people I, my first time was 95 with potential and uh they're like literally family lifelong family friends and it's just, it's just amazing you know um and then I just kept hanging out with them in phase two mm -hmm. in 2000. That was 2002 when mm -hmm. we played with them. And uh, man, what an experience that was. Um, I was kind of down there for a couple of other reasons than just playing pan and uh, ended up spending lots of time with Boogsy that year. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were going back and forth to Matura to get some um, 
spiritual work doing both of us because that was the year he was uh, he was clean that year. Right. I remember that he was drinking. He had a bottle of water in his hand the entire mm-hmm. time, every time. And yeah, was, I he remember- was going through this metamorphosis, and we were going through the same um, Obia man way out in mature out in the bush. Mm-hmm. I could write a book on that, and uh, so it was really that trip. With, the music was great too. Um, mm-hmm. Being in the, I remember being in the. Uh, it was a different vibe than the potential. It wasn't quite as family oriented from what I was used to. But it was the energy that was there was really cool. And uh, just playing one of his tunes was great. But being able to spend time with him and I would watch him listen. He would have a little one of these little cassettes and listen to the rehearsals from the night before. And I was like, shit, man, he's going to change everything tonight. And, you know, he, and then he would. But, uh, yeah, that, that was a great experience that year. Well, let me ask you. Just, I would love to talk with you about the Obiaman and your your time because I had some I had some moments of spirituality in Trinidad. My first time being exposed to someone for whom like mystic healing was a thing was mm-hmm. was in Trinidad, and I I got hit by a wave at Maracas Bay and really fucked my shoulder up real bad. Like Whoa. my right my right arm was completely numb, and I was like, I don't know what, what's going on, and I'm pretty sure I tore something, and it's why my shoulder blades hurt to this day. But there was a, one of the guys in, in Faze's yard, his name was T. Shaka. Um, he was kind of in charge of cleaning the yard and sort of okay. tidying up. But when he found out my, my shoulder was hurt, he's like, show up at 10 p.m. I was like, okay. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm 20 years old. I don't know. I'm just, just a person telling me to do something. I'm like, yes, sir. Absolutely. And I show up and he's got all of these mystic healing oils laid out in Faze's yard. It's like 10 p.m. No one's there. It's just me and T. Shaka. And he's like, take your shirt off. <laughs> I was like, uh-huh. this is it. This is how like they're going to find my body here, and this is how this is going to go. And he just right. very politely massaged my shoulder with oils and was like, how do you feel? I was like, I'm terrified, to be quite honest, sir. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, I want to I get to that experience with you. Um, but I, I'm curious if you can take me back to like baby Tracy and like what got you into – like I know that you – Yes, we have the the phase two connection, but you also have your own sort of corner of the pan world that is the pan rocks uh, sort of uh, music that you arrange that has been you've been had had a shitload of success with that recently. Um, and I, I want to talk to you about that. But like, what got you into pan at all? Like, what would you grow up in a musical household? Like, what was your childhood lo- like? No, I was uh, I was one of the kids. Um, I was a drummer. From three years old, I got my first drum kit at three, and uh, I wanted to be a basketball player. Of course, I didn't want to be a musician. I wanted to be play for North Carolina Tar Heels. You know, that's our religion down here. And uh, so, since that didn't work out, um, you know, I was the drummer in town that you know won the talent show in fourth grade, and then mm. they put me in the band early, um, like high school marching band, three years early because I was supposedly a prodigy, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the military aspect of it. I stayed in the pet band so I could play kit, but I probably weighed 90 pounds. The big 15 inch snare drums with the strap, not the holster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, so I did that for a year. Um, but then I just started playing with rock bands in 15. And then I ended up, um, you know, being in bands in high school. So while my friends were in high school on the weekends, I was doing the clubs and that kind of thing. So I was like, I wanted to be a rock star, you know? Were your parents and, like? What uh, did your folks do for a living? Were they supportive of of this path? They were, yeah, man. My parents are amazing. They're still around. Me and my pop still ride um, motorcycles. Um, he's like eighty three, but 
they didn't like the fact I didn't go to college because mm. I chose not. I went to art school for a half a year to appease them. And then I dropped out because there was a, um, a job at the local music store to sell drums. And I was like, well, I'll do that and be in a rock band. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they didn't like that. But, yeah, they were um, they didn't like the music. You know, it was heavy metal. They didn't like the scene. I was around a lot of older people. I was around a lot of things I shouldn't have been around at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I didn't get caught up in it, um, but they would come out to all the shows, like even Pan Rocks. If I'm in Texas or Ohio, they'll drive and come see the shows to this day. So mm-hmm. they've always been really supportive and really lucky with them on that. And, Wait, um, one, do, are your parents together or they live separately? Mm-hmm. When no, you say- they're together. They, I'm still in Greensboro, North Carolina, and they live 20 minutes away. So well, um, When you said Texas or Ohio? Like, did you just randomly pull those states out? Like, they'll drive to yeah, see Yeah, oh, like, okay. I did a big show in Akron, Ohio, and they drove there. I did Pasek in at San Antonio, and they drove there okay. just to be there. That's so, awesome. Where did you play in Akron? Uh, did the first Pan Rocks thing was at the big theater downtown. I can't remember Civic. the um, name of the theater. The Akron Civic? Yeah, the mm-hmm. big, big one with mm-hmm. the big plush with the ceiling and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was the first concert back in 2013, just okay. to see if it would work or if anyone would give a shit about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but long story short, I didn't even start playing pan until I would say 23, 24. Um, I heard Jane says by Jane's addiction, you know, Perkins had the little pan and Jane says, mm, and I, don't, I, I like, didn't, I didn't know that he used pan in a, in a Jane's addiction. Yeah. Too. He, um, well, I'll, I'll back up a little bit, but when I, when I didn't go to college and I knew I was, this is what I wanted to do for a living. I was going to be a drummer. So this is before the internet and everything. I graduated in 87. So I used to drive down to Raleigh to state. I used to go to Duke. I used to go to UNCG and check out books on the history of percussion. And I would just put myself through this own little of what I thought was old school. And of course, all roads lead back to Africa. So I really got into um, West African drumming. Mm. And I got a teacher, Khalid Saleem. And Chuck Davis, African-American dance ensemble, who used to be based out of New York, relocated in the early 80s to Durham, North Carolina. So the best djembe players in the country were right, were now or right down the road. Mm. So I, I studied with them and got really heavy into that between the rock band thing. And then that opened up my mind to Indian music. Um, and then long story longer, we, we did a concert one night and Mark Ford, when he was still at ECU, his steel drum band opened up the show. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. the first time I'd ever seen Pan live. And they, they were doing the, you know, the, the cheesy kind of thing. They were killing it, but it was, and I was just like, man, I want to do that. I was already burnt out on the um, road, the rock and roll road thing. I'd already been on the road six, seven years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, and then I got a pan from a Trinidadian guy here out of Charlotte, North Carolina and learned Mary, taught myself how to play Marianne and Bahia girl. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And then, um, I heard Pan by Storm by Professor, mm-hmm. the big panorama version. And to me, um, I always say this, to, that literally just sounded like a rock song. Mm-hmm. I could envision people slam dancing to it, the whole thing. And Professor became immediately my favorite arranger. And that was, a, you know, my favorite. I was just like, I've got to do that. And then uh, fast forward a couple of years, I met him at an Minute Steel Drum Workshop. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I'd ever been around other pan players in 94. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm not a reader. I found out I could hear things and play it. Mm-hmm. And a uh, professor invited a few of us down for 95 Carnival, and a couple of us took him up on it. And you know how that goes. You go down and play Panorama, and then it's every year 
that you can make it down. So it changes your life. So that's in a nutshell. That's a long story short. Well, what when you went to I'm curious about your like you got a pan, you learned Marianne and Bahia Girl and then you're in Trinidad. Like what were the conversations like? Like for me, it was a long time before Bugsy and Cliff. Well, Cliff, I think, never really approved of me going to Trinidad. Like, I think, you know, Cliff was, Cl- Cl- I mean, he was very supportive, but like he, he was really hard on Trinidad and he was always like, do not go. Like he was always, it was very strange, but, but uh-huh. when I went, he would, he would call Bugsy and all of his friends down there and be like, keep an eye out for this guy. Like he, he, oh, okay. he was very he supportive, said- but like he, he was harder on his own country than I think most, most Trinidadians in my experience have been. And, um, it took a long time to sort of crack that nut before he trusted me enough to be like, come on down. And Bugsy, it's like, I drove him around for a week whenever he was at Akron and like took him to get food and sat while he practiced and listened quietly. Like, and mm-hmm. I'm curious for you, like, how was that trust building? I mean, cause I'm just going to call a spade a spade for me. I'm a white kid from a cornfield in Ohio. You're a white mm-hmm. kid from, you know, Summerfield, North Carolina, the mountains of North Carolina corn, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a, I, I was aware of the cultural differences as a nine, you know, as a high school kid when I met Cliff and then 19 or 18 when I met Bugsy, but I, it, I, I wasn't aware of all the context behind all that stuff. I'm curious for you, like when you first met, you know, professor, how did that sort of, I don't want to say transaction, but how did that, that interaction go? And like, how did you build trust and enough to be able to get asked to go down? Cause that's a thing, you know, he's inviting you to his country for God's sakes and his band, like. You know. Yeah, I think um, I had like a nice liaison, like I was saying, my African drum teacher, Khalid Salim, who's literally my second father. Um, he was up at Broadport for years and now he's back down at Durham, uh, in um, Appalachian. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think knowing him and then being in his world, you know, coming from my white kid, Panera, you know, the um, toxic popsicle playing at CBGB's world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was a nice transition. Um, I'd met Ellie before through a mm, friend of mine mm. who was an apprentice of his. I met him when he was still traveling around. And back, I didn't even know who Cliff was. I didn't know there was like an Ellie camp and a Cliff camp, you know. Mm. I just met Ellie. He had come to North Carolina, I don't know, three or four years before he was at West Virginia. But um, when I met Professor, it's a it's a funny story, actually. I was really nervous to go. Cause I didn't know if I could do it. And of course I put myself in all the advanced classes. And again, like I was saying, I wasn't a reader and I was around all these musicians that went to school and all that kind of thing. I was just a garage rock and roll guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first day I was there, I don't know how my girlfriend found me, but I was just six hours down the road, three o'clock in the morning, that first night, someone's knocking on my door and she had came to tell me that my dog had died. She was watching my dog. So the first day of the camp, dude, I was sitting up in the um, stands, literally just crying like a little baby the whole time. I was just so heartbroken. I didn't want to be at the camp. I wanted mm-hmm. to go home. And Professor kind of caught wind of that. And he was really cool to me. And we hit it off. And uh, and then he could find, you know, he saw I could play and I was learning. And uh, like I said, invited us down. He didn't invite us down with a red carpet. He kind of threw us through the wolves in Trinidad. We had to figure it out. It mm-hmm. was a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. But um, and that was my first experience being out of the country. But that's kind of how I met Professor. Um, I hadn't really talked about that a lot before. But uh, yeah, he he met me when I was just like shattered. My life had just shattered into a thousand pieces. Wow, that's well. It's as you were. T- I mean, I, I said the thing about Cliff being Cliff was a hard nut to crack for me personally. Um, and he later became, and as you mentioned, the sort of two camps like Cliff. 
Cliff to me is one of the most important Trinidadians as far as the history of Pan is concerned in the United States and the development of it um, in the education <laughs> system. But like Ellie is the the mere image of Cliff. Like there's it not not in a like better or worse way, but just like Ellie, there is a whole lineage of tuners and builders that have come out of Ellie's sort of camp that mm-hmm. didn't happen with Cliff's camp necessarily. Like it's just right. been interesting thing about their two approaches. Ellie was very forthcoming with how to tune. Cliff was much more protective of those and, and not like distrusting, but like he just was like, I'm not gonna show you how to do this thing that took me my whole life if you're not gonna yeah. do it your whole life. And mm-hmm. if you you know, that means you're only gonna teach one student, you know, like who's ever gonna really <laughs> dive in. And Ellie, I feel like really structured around showing these skill sets to other people. And then that meant you get people like Darren Dyke, Billy Sheeter, Emily Lemmerman, like all of these tuners that come out of there. Um, but for me, and I never met Ellie, I've, you know, he somehow managed to go through my entire life and never cross paths with him. But the generosity wow. is the thing for me that is, has always struck me about the Trinidadian community. Um, it's not generosity without complications, but sure. the... Um, especially right now when everybody's arguing about like culturally what's appropriate for every, any given thing, cultural appropriation, what white people can and can't do, what black people should or shouldn't do, what, how all of these people, how people should talk to each other, how they shouldn't talk to each other. I just mm-hmm. think like, man, if Cliff Alexis would have, he had to have adhered to the rules of today, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have ever gone. I would have been too afraid, you know? And I was fortunate to have people like Cliff who were just like, okay, you want to do this? Let's do it stay away from these people, talk to these people. If you see this run, if you see this run towards it, like all of those things. And it was just very gracious. And I, I'm just kind of like, um, I feel in these discussions around world music and whether or not as a white person, you should be involved. I just feel like, did I miss something over the last 20 years? Because I've got nothing but support from people like Cliff and, you know, Bugsy and all yeah, those other it's folks. Weird. Cause you know, I was playing African drums before drum circles and Remo drums and all that stuff in the late eighties. Mm-hmm. And those, these guys knew it was coming and they didn't like it. They knew what that was going to turn into. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of them that kept encouraging me to play pan. Cause you know, they were like, you know, and back then, you know, dude, I had the dreadlocks to my waist and the mm-hmm. whole bit, you know, I look like Vance Humphrey and uh, <laughs> not, not as pretty as Vance, but that whole kind of thing. But, um, the, the crazy thing about it, like your, if your first time in Trinidad was 2002, and I'm no expert on Trinidad by any means, mm-hmm. but I've been going down since 95. I've been married to a Trinidadian for 22 years now. And uh, in 1995, dude, we would rehearse in Barataria, take a cab three o'clock in the morning, get dropped off at the promenade, walk through downtown to the Savannah to get the next cab. And you couldn't do that in 2002. So the first two or three years I went down, it was relatively... You had to keep an eye out, but mm-hmm. everything was pretty cool. I remember around 99, 2000 is when um, some of that crack, the crack started coming in and the drug stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there was the perfect um, storm of after 9-11, Bush started deporting everybody. So you had a lot of guys that were involved in gang life and that kind of thing being deported back to Trinidad and they were setting up shop. Mm -hmm. So the whole vibe down there's changed in the early 2000s. Remember, they used to have the Colombian style kidnappings. Mm -hmm. You know, the murder rate went up like nobody's business. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like that in the mid 90s. And I'm sure in the 80s, it was um, a lot better than that. So my first time getting the feel of the island and the people and everyone that I'd met was a little bit different, I think, than maybe your Mm -hmm. 
I wasn't quite as scared. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I was nervous. I'd never been out of the country, but it it didn't have that connotation. Like my family from Princess Town, they wouldn't if they had to pick me up on Laventil, I had to meet them in Port of Spain. They weren't even going to go up there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um so you would hear about it through them, but I never really not until I cut my hair, no one ever called me Yankee or anything. They just thought I was like a maybe a white local or something with the mm. dreads. But um, well, it's yeah, one. Of the, it's, I, I just haven't. I mean, a lot of this, my feelings on this stuff, I'm trying to like parse out as to whether or not what what is it is true. What is it? What are my feeling? What of my feelings are true, and what it is? What is it is just bias because I've only had this really specific in experience in Trinidad, and mm. and a lot. I've actually played more in the panoramas and worked and drilled with bands in Brooklyn, which is a very similar vibe to Trinidad, but um, the if you can play and you just keep your mouth shut and do your job, every door will be well, not maybe not every door, but the doors will be open. Like you won't have to work as hard, and mm-hmm. you can be a foreigner. Like I, you know, the first two weeks I was in Faces Yard, very few people talked to me. It was only after that second week, the guy behind me in the the full army fatigues with the Black Power Black Panther beret playing guitars, who I was terrified of for those two weeks because I I had only heard of Black Panthers from Rush Limbaugh, you know, like uh. that was my my like racism, like the far you know uh, the extremes of 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 political uh, violence in the United States and, and advocacy for or against all this stuff. Like I was only hearing about it from talk radio, you know? So I see a guy behind me with black Panther stuff and I'm like, <laughs> like rush told me about this guy. And, um, but he, he tapped me on the shoulder. It was like, he's like, you're doing great. And I just felt like, yeah, dude. Oh my God. <laughs> that was like the nicest thing anybody's ever. And it was the next week and a half was just absolutely an open spigot of, anything I wanted information stories like, but there was that two week I had to, I had to cut my teeth. Yeah. Phase two. I remember I had to reprove myself there. I'd, mm. I'd already played what four panoramas in Tobago and a few different bands in um, Port of Spain. But I remember um, Avis hooked me up with uh Boogsies, like, you know, Tracy wants to play with phase two this year. And I remember when I first came into the yard, they brought out the section leader and he was teaching me, I don't know, maybe the first three or four minutes of the song and all these people gathered around. I was like, you know, and you have to get it. You have to learn it. You have, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I did it. And they were like, cool. And then Boogsy put me in a second row, told the whole band, this is Tracy's spot. Don't move him because my buddy Dave Lapio went down the year before rehearsed the whole time and they kicked him out the night before finals. Yeah. Um, so you would hear about that thing. When I played in, um, potential it was much more of a family atmosphere mm-hmm. so you had eight-year-old kids to grandparents in the whole band it was a whole different scene um but remember in 2002 the uh what do you call it our theme that year was remember everybody was dressing up for carnival like the taliban because oh, they were right and ben, ben lyon was that big bomb tune that year yeah and then um the guy that was doing our costumes he was the only guy that wasn't nice to me in the whole pan yard the guy that will walk around i forget his name you mean he the would guy that was handing these out i still have mine still the blind have... green the whole bit really? yeah. I, I think i lost the 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 pantyhose i don't know where those got to but i still have mine dude i have all that yeah uh yeah i remember i was like damn i'm in this group and I'm like, man, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. But, you know, they, we were the Taliban, dude. And they, they were just kind of like, you know, America, you know, they they kind of celebrated that, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So, yeah, but yeah was... I, rem- I remember phase two. I, I might have been more intimidated if that was if if my ex- first experience was your first experience. It might have been different than if I'd gone in '95 and played with a band like Potential. Well, this is it where, was more intimidating. This is where my bias comes in here, and like I I think I'm I'm not a completely aware of how much Cliff threatened Bugsy. <laughs> you know, I don't want to. You know, Cliff's dead now, so I can't know for sure, but. Um, I had the connection with Boogsy before I went down, but it was, and so when I walked in the, when I walked in the yard, I remember Boogsy came right up to me. Like it wasn't that long after he was at Akron that I went to Trinidad the next year. So he, just that mere act of him recognizing me, okay, sort of like, everybody's like, okay, Boogsy knows who this, this cat is. And then, um, learning the tune was like the next step of having to prove myself. And I did it in two days. I didn't even go to a rehearsal in two days. It was just like eight hours of Almond St. Rose. I'll never forget that guy. And it wasn't that hard of a tune. It was amazing, but technically it wasn't, you know what I'm saying? It wasn't too hard, you know? Right. And I learned that tune and then, you know, you just get thrown in the band. And when Bugsy turned around or wasn't paying attention, that's when I would notice like a few of the, elder statesman in the section would come and just stand beside me, uh-huh. you know, and very polite, like no, no, no judgment, no nothing. And one guy taught me there's a, there's one like, and they taught it to me like, boom, except it's, it's all on the offbeat. And I was like, but he was teaching it to me on the downbeat. And Got it. I was just like, what the, and there was like three days where I was like, what the fuck is going on? Why am I, I cannot. And my, and my buddy Jeff just leaned over for me and he's like, you got to start the whole passage on the E of one, uh-huh. not on one. And I was like, oh, cultural. See, I learned, that's, that's how cultural I used to learn African, you know, like, African teacher. Mm-hmm. They, you would never get the one. You could play a rhythm for two months in an ensemble and you never knew what the freaking one was. Right. And then one day it would hit. You're like, oh, then it just turns around. And uh, but you never got that one. You had to figure that out on your own. And that was um, I think that helped me with um, the rhythms and learning stuff in Trinidad, you know, just because right. a lot of times they wouldn't give you that, you know. Well, and that, that moment was an odd sort of like I was grateful for my classical studies where I had like in my head when Jeff. Do you remember Jeff Knightsky? Yeah. Jeff, Jeff was uh-huh. my buddy. He was there with it. And so Jeff was just like, you got to put it on the E. And because I knew what. I knew what the music looked like. I was like, okay, cool. And and so I just did that and I was able to move it over and I played the whole line. And then the section Uh leaders were like, oh man. Like, (laughs) so I was just like, trust me, that wasn't, that wasn't magic. That was just me knowing in the score where I'm supposed to put this stuff. Like to me, it's more magical that you can just tap this stuff out and play. Like they play everything as if it's a downbeat. Every note right. is the start of the measure, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Every but first note is a downbeat. Right. right. And, but that's, <laughs> but that's why those big steel bands, that's why Renegade sounds the way it does. That's why phase sounds the way it does. It's like, you know, and that's why just to call balls and strikes, that's why NYU steel band sounds the way we do. It's because uh-huh. we don't, I mean, we grew up playing, you know, Porgy and Bess and like things, right, right. things where like, but whatever, like having a groove is like, or knowing where you are in the one is, is key. And anyway, just to say that I wish orchestras were taught by rote. I wish Beethoven five could be taught by rote to an orchestra who had never played it. Well, it could you be, know? it just needs a, a director like you to, to do it. No, well, it, could, it totally could be. Yeah. For, I'm fine to do it. It's the union wages that would have to, for a month <laughs> that, that would be like, you know, Oh cool. That was an awesome project. It cost us $45 million. That was really lovely. I'm glad we did this by rote, you know? 
Exactly. Well, yeah. Tracy, I want to ask. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm good. No, I was just going to ask. Like, your. I want you to talk a little bit about your Pan Rocks project and sort of how that came. I mean, obviously, you know, rock music and heavy metal music has been part of your life since, from what seems birth. Um, and the pan world is one in which, um, you know, arranging classical music and arranging pop tunes off the radio is traditionally in Trinidad. Those are like the two legs upon which at least the steel band world grew like tunes off the radio. Dan is the man in the van, mighty sparrow, Lord Kitchener, all these things. And then you have the world, the world music festivals where they're arranging Tchaikovsky and Smetana and all of these things. Uh, and then you've got things like Skiffle Bunch in the rainforest with Bugsy, where it's where it's yes, it's a panorama band, but this is a completely original form of music now in a classical mm-hmm. style that's neither Smetana or a pop tune off the radio. And right. so, just to say, like arranging heavy metal music for the steel band is not weird in the pan world, but in the music world, the classical music world, I'm curious how much you've been seen as a weirdo just from the from the the classical music world versus the pan world because I bet in the pan world you've been they're like well, yeah that's that's Tracy's doing what we do like that's what we do is we we arrange music we love for the instrument and I'm just kind of curious from you like what how did that stuff work in your head and how how was it received by people when you first started doing it It took a while actually um because I had a group called Sons of Steel there were a group of kids back mm-hmm. in 99 to 2003 and a lot, I know there's a band in, now in New York called Sons of Steel, but I had these a group of kids. They were 8 to 12, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. We had a national agent, a management company, and um, we were a full-time band. We had a homeschool, and cool. uh, I wrote a, a lot of the charts that a lot of bands are playing now were from that group, like Dame Bramage and Carpe Diem and these kind of tunes that some, some of the charts I have out. And Andy Norella, he had saw us at a camp and really dug what we were doing and wanted to produce us. So he produced that CD for us in Nashville back in 2000. And some of my originals kind of had that rock theme. And the cool thing about Sons of Steel was, I mean, we would come to New York and open up for Marshall Montano. Mm-hmm. We weren't playing like by a pool. We were like on main stages. And this was not a that. this was not a bat mitzvah band. This is no. We were <laughs> yeah. the main stage at Disney. We would tour with the Whalers band, Burning Spear. Um, we opened for Buffett. Um, the Marshall Montano gig in 2000 was killer with Iowa George and Drippity. Um, we didn't know if we were going to get shot or or what because you know we're in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. ten thousand trinnies, you know. And uh, but um, so all that was a great experience. So for that band, it worked. And we had a whole show. And then when that band defunct, I remember start, I started going to PASIC. I'm going to I'm turning this to a long story around 2004 with Alan Coyle. He mm-hmm. used to have a booth. He was like, dude, just come hang out with me. I didn't even know what PASIC was. Mm-hmm. Come hang out with me at the booth and you need to meet some band directors. And, you know, it's like, okay. And I remember meeting a lot of these band directors and they're hey, where did you go to school? I shake their hand. I was like, I didn't go to school and the conversation will be over. I just mm-hmm. wasn't in the click you know and then um it wasn't until 2008 that chris tanner saw me somewhere and he gave me my first um gig coming to a school and we did a couple of my songs and then um chris runs the band at at, uh, miami of ohio just for folks who who don't know who chris Mm -hmm. is so you know that was like four years and then i remember um a lot and i'm trying i'm uh, i'm painting the picture i'm trying to enter this world of guest artists because that's mm-hmm, what you do mm-hmm. 
Um, there are in the pan world that like like Andy Norell, Tom Miller, Pan Ramajay, like in, in the in the college educational scene. I know like and there's many others, but like you know Jeff Norell, like folks would come through and be a guest with a band and sit in and play, and then would leave. They'd be there for three or four days, and then you know. Right, and there was a handful of them. Mm-hmm. You know, there was literally you know five or six guys. Yeah. And um, I didn't know if I could do that, so he had me come in. But I I do remember hearing through the grapevine that, you know, you know, this band's not going to play your music. It's not harmonically sound. It's not this, that, and the other, you know, it wasn't Ray Holman. It wasn't Andy Norell. It wasn't Tom Miller. I was totally at that time, 15, 20 years ago, I was coming from a whole different thing to me. The rock stuff made sense because of what I said earlier about hearing, um, pan by storm mm-hmm. with 120. And every time I would write a song, I would hear a hundred people playing it. I never heard it before. Mm-hmm. So that that's what, what I was hearing in my head. And then um, in 2013, well, right before 2013, um, there was Marta Wetzel and some people used to put on at the time. You see them all the time now, these festivals where you would have bands come and perform. And then at the end of the festival, they would all form like a Moss band. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing that all the time now. And I finally heard Dame Bramage with, I don't know, 130 pan players like in a gymnasium. Right. And I was just like, whoa, this is exactly what I've been hearing in my head. And that was inspiration for putting on the first Pan Rots concert. I wanted it to be a whole concert, but um, like Moss Band style doing um, rock music. And the rock music thing, for one, that's just kind of my DNA and my language. Mm-hmm. And I'm, that's what I'm good at. But I kind of see myself as going into middle schools and high schools and some universities like, for instance, Tanner had me come in and he had like two months to get a concert together. He was either going to do a panorama song and a bossa nova or he could learn 15 pan rock songs. So I can go in and the music's not brain surgery. The kids love learning how to play. But if we can turn on kids in, let's say, the middle of nowhere in Ohio, mm-hmm. Japan playing a Led Zeppelin or a Metallica tune, then I get to like talk about Liam T and Trinidad and Victor Provost mm. or, you know, you know, and now I've seen a lot of students that I've worked with throughout the country that are at NIU now. You know, it's, they're not playing Pan Rocks anymore, thank goodness. They're beyond that. But I, tur- I know I was a big part of turning them onto the instrument, the art form. And uh, and I'm really comfortable. That, that's kind of how I see myself. And I'm really comfortable with that. And then with the Pan Rocks in L.A., being able to um, attach to some of these rock star guys, they just give me such a megaphone to reach people that I can never reach, you know, having Mike Portnoy on your rush project, you know, instead of 10,000 people watching 500,000 people watch it. And, uh, and if if he's on it, then most of those people think it's cool. So they might check out the whole art form. So I just, that's kind of how I see the whole pan rocks thing. Well, I really like that you, I mean, just it's, I'm, I want to say I'm relieved because I didn't have a sense of despair at all uh, talking to you about this stuff. But like I'm, it's a it is like a warm blanket when I hear you say like it. You're using this stuff as a vehicle to talk about Liam and Professor and Robbie Greenwich and, and these things like that. Making that connect as an educator for me that's super important. And I again like I it's very humbling to hear you say things like you know they were playing Pan Rocks but they're not anymore. Thank goodness. Like. Yeah, there, there's, right. that's humil that you, you're showing humility about about your own thing, and I think that's I don't know. I just admire that. I don't have a question here. I just want to say like I think that's that's a really great thing to hear about this particular mission of yours because this I'm doing it a different way, but I have the same mission, which is like Bugsy, Cliff, Liam, 
Pat Bishop, all of these people are like my heroes and heroines. And if I can just get in the room with you through whatever means, I will tell you about those folks, but like whatever you need to do to get in the room. I'm curious, like the, the rock, the, I, I studied, I didn't study. I had to sight read, prepare yourself. I had to sight read Dane Bramage on a university of Illinois steel band concert a couple of years ago. That's we, so was doing a residency and the steel band was playing something and, and uh, they asked me to come in and play. I was like, yeah, sure. And they were like, you know, solo over this, you know, Bahia girl, or whatever. It's like, okay, I'm, I know enough to be, I know enough to convince most people that I can do this. Um, as soon as somebody knows what they're doing is in the room, different story, but, right. but he put up totally. Dane, Dane Bramage and I was like, all right, here we go. I'm going to see where I'm at. And one of the things that, and I, this is meant to be a compliment. Um, but I feel like that, like the rock music, given that a lot of it's structurally in terms of the way chords are structured on guitars, is a lot of open fourths, fifths, things, and the way chromatic things work. I'm curious, as you're like arranging this stuff for the pan, did you find, I could imagine for a younger player playing double seconds, for example, having things that are fourths and fifths, it's like, oh, I see all of these patterns now way clearer than if I would have been playing even, let's say, Marianne or Bahia Girl. Like, you know, because you're doing like the third and the seventh. But in you know, Bob O'Reilly, your job isn't necessarily to be tricky with your harmonies. It's just to put the right fifth in the right place. And on pan, that stuff lays really well. And so it's not a shock to me that when you get younger players on this stuff, it just sounds amazing because it fits so well. And and I did all these Philip Glass arrangements and I found that they, there was a natural, like they grafted on to the steel orchestra in a really natural way. It's just really good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh And like for you arranging rock music, I'm curious, like, is that part of your process, like the educational side of this, somebody's facility at the instrument, or are you just trying to make the tune sound good or both? Uh, it might be both. The weird thing about what you're saying is, is that, you know, on a, I'm a tenor player. And so a fourth and fifth is right beside each other. For years, I was playing thirds because you're in steel band. You know, that's what I would right. hear. Right. So when I started doing the pan rocks thing, I don't know, 10 years into it, it took my brain. I had to untrain my brain for third patterns, the fifths and fourths, but, but they're right beside each other. That was like a challenge for me. Mm. And mm. it still is sometimes because sometimes it's not natural. Um, but uh, yeah, that's curious that you say that because when I started doing fourths and fifths, I'm like, dang, if I would have started this like this, it would have been a whole lot easier. You know? Well, I say the sight reading, but, I don't want to mean, I don't want to imply that Dame Bramage is an easy piece. I'm not saying that at all. But as somebody who's 41 years old and I sit down, I'm like, and I, and I've practiced all the, like, I've practiced whole tone scales with one hand as fast as I can get it on both double seconds. I've practiced chromatic scales as double stops all the way up. I've done all the things that are idiomatic to the instrument. And when I saw that and I was like, I got three bars into it and I was like, okay, Every time I see these two notes in a row, I know that Tracy's probably doing this thing and that's this thing. And that's actually way easier than it looks on the page, you know? And as I was sight reading, I just sort of was like, well, I'm going to roll the dice here. Is this what Tracy's doing? I was like, yeah, go good. Yes. That's what he was wanting. And I just felt like, oh, this is a good, this music is a really good way to build some very just like fundamental like uh, techniques in your playing. I mean, I, I came at it from the other side of things, but I think your music does a good job of that. Well, what, like, say if I came like into your class one day, I'm this guy, like say you had Andy Norell six months earlier. Mm-hmm. I love Andy and I owe everything I do to Andy, mm-hmm. but I know, you know, he wants every note perfect and this, that, and if the drummer misses something, he's going to be really upset, you know, that kind of thing. 
dude, we're playing rock music on pan. Mm -hmm. So I actually encourage players, like if we're playing cashmere, if we're, if we're doing the vocal line, I'm encouraging pan players to get to the different notes at different times. So it sounds like a slur. Mm. I encourage people not to be perfect because it won't sound rock music. I want them to have like the spirit of it and to enjoy it because they're going to learn. They, they'll be able to feel a type of music that they won't feel if Victor comes in the next time or Andy comes in the next time. And, uh, and I'm totally cool with that. I'm just trying to give them a different experience on the music aspect of it. And then maybe the path that I took to be a, cause luckily I've been a professional musician for 30 years. Mm -hmm. It's the only job I've ever had. And there, I just had to do it a different way. I have to work mm. my ass off at it, and it's 24-7. But um, if you love what you're doing, you don't mind doing that. So so those are the kind of things that I can talk about. And then for kids that have a hard time learning things, I can talk to them too. Because say if you learned a panorama tune, if it took you three passes to learn a thing, it might take me six. I'm just willing to do it six times. I'm probably not going to learn it as fast as you, but I'm going to get it. And when I get it, I'll play it as good as anyone on the planet. Um, so that's just where I come from. And I think it's just kind of like ignorance is bliss. Sometimes I just don't know what I'm walking into and I'm, I'm probably in a room that I shouldn't be belong in, but I'm in there and I'll make out and I'll try to get out on the skate, you know? So, um, well, that, that leads me to this question then. I mean, this sort of, as you said that, like, should I be even be in this room? Like the impo <laughs> the imposter syndrome. I mean, I, when I'm asked to drill a steel band in Trinidad by Kendall and like, and the owner of the band says, here you go. And I walk in front of 140 trinnies and I'm like, I'm going to tell you what to do with your music. Like how, why the yeah. fuck am I even in this room? Like that anxiety can wash over you for you though. You're in the room with Mike fucking Portnoy, Portnoy. like talk well, about man, what I, imposter dude, syndrome. What like, <laughs> I'll tell you what, what I've learned these, and it's been the last five or six years since I've really been out in LA and kind of, I don't, I don't know how I got into the mix, man. Those guys are just super cool. And, um, the, the one thing that we have to our advantage, a lot of steel pan players have to our advantage here in the States is that it's something new and it's something they've never done before. And they're not familiar with it. Hmm. So um, for Perkins or Portnoy or Billy Sheehan or any of these guys to be in a room and hear 30 pan, you know, playing cashmere or playing Tom Sawyer for them, that's just like they shit their pants because and now I'm like, I'm just telling Perkins, I'm like, I have to take you to Trinidad. You have to. Mm -hmm. I want him to play Iron in a 120-piece band because he's just going to shit himself, you know? I'd love to hear Mike Portnoy sit in with, like, Skiffle Bunch or something. Like, I just, you know, there's. You know? And he was just cool. And I was never a Portnoy fanboy, so I wasn't mm -hmm. really intimidated by him. But, I, you know, when we met before, the day before the sessions and stuff, man, he was just really cool. And um, he was familiar with what we do. And um, like I said, for and for those guys to sign on to what we're doing out there is a big deal because they know that's part of their – they're not going to sign on anything that might damage their thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a, sometimes it's a business decision. So that's been a really good thing. But the, what I was getting at is what I've learned being out there, and I wish I would have learned this when I was 18 years old, is the, the old saying, and I'm sure you know this, is everything you've always wanted is just on the other side of discomfort. Mm, so mm. if you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing and you're not getting to what you want and put it on those projects in L.A. in a horizon that I've never been on. I had no business being there. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. But if somebody's going to give me an opportunity, you just do it. 
And then you figure out on your own and knowing these guys and talking to them about it, they operate the same way. Mm. Like there's really no, you can say A, B, C, D, but in that kind of world, it's going to do this and you just have to be able to bend with it and not stress out over too much of it. But then when I talk to these guys who are really successful, those guys are like comfortable in the uncomfort. Mm. You know, it's like, you would never know I'm a gym rat because I'm so small, but I'm in the gym all the time. If I'm not feeling sore somewhere, I just feel real shitty, you know, like mm. a lush. Mm. So um, I've learned that in the last five years. If I knew that 30 years ago, man, I might be a couple of steps farther than I am now when I'm 50, almost 52. So, um, well, there's something to be said. I mean, there's no pill that you can take to sound like Mike Portnoy. Yes, he sounds great by himself, but mm-hmm. he's also had thousands of gigs <laughs> playing with some of the best musicians he's on the planet. Everybody. He's like in a hundred bands. Yeah. Dude. I mean, I think, but I mean, so yes, I think, first of all, yes, you deserve to be in the room. Yes, he's a nice guy, but he's still also the drummer for Dream Theater. <laughs> Or was anyway, like, like I think I, uh, imposter syndrome aside, I would get in the room and be like, do you remember that tune, uh, Yahtzee jam or however, however you pronounce it? Like it's majesty backwards. <laughs> like that's what I would, that, that would have been me. Like regard, I mean, cause he's still Mike Portnoy, you know, like I, it's, a, it's still, a let thing. me tell let me tell you how cool that guy is. Cause when we went into it, you know, I heard all the ego stories or mm. whatever. And, uh, after we were done with it and we got the first mixes, he called me, he was like, Tracy, man. I really, cause you don't know if these guys are going to like it or not. You know what I mean? Or share it on their page or whatever. You just, you know, he did, but he was like, do you mind if, um, if I send this project over to Neil? And I was just like, of course not. You know, and you know how private Neil Peart was. And, you know, he was friends with Neil. I don't know if Neil ever listened to it or heard it or whatever, but the fact for Portnoy to make sure it was okay with me, Mm -hmm. Tracy Thornton from Summerfield, North Carolina, to let Neil hear this project, I thought was really a, that was a humbling thing too. Cause guys like that, um, you don't know how they operate. And, uh, that, that, that was a good thing to see. You know, it was a perfect, he was a total gentleman about it. You know, that's, that's awesome. Did you, were any of, I mean, what were some of the reactions of some of the drummers you worked with or other, you know, not just drummers, you had guitarists and people in the room too. Like what, what were some of the reactions? Were they pumped? Was there anybody, I and mean, you don't need to name names, but was anybody like, bro, this is not cool. Like, like, like I'm sure you had to have somebody no. that gave you shit, right? Like, dude, when I first, when I did the first one, um, and I started calling pan players to be a part of it, a lot of people didn't sign on cause, all right, this is a, I knew I was coming to a crossroads where I thought I was either this is going to work mm-hmm. or it's going to be really, really bad. <laughs> like, and, my, and then I'm going to have to like learn how to flip burgers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I was given the opportunity I found a handful of players, like 25, 30 players to go out there on that first one. Um, and of course, Perkins was already on board. I'd already done some work with him and he was familiar that I'd already done like a whole James addiction tribute record that mm-hmm. he is, he was familiar with. So he was hip to the idea. And of course it's a paying gig. Those guys are out there hustling like anyone else. Yeah. And, uh, but Matt Starr was kind of the focal point of all this. He saw me put together a small group at the whiskey and um, we did a couple of tunes with Perkins and um, he was like, Hey dude, he knew what my vision of this whole thing was and what the end game, what I wanted. That's a, another conversation. Um, and he was like, these are the steps, what you can do to take. He's kind of like a, the Tony Robbins of rock and roll. people. Mm-hmm. He's like a life coach for mm-hmm. rock and roll guys. Right. So he, he sent me a proposal for the first Pan Rocks thing. And he had a list of 
these are the bass players I can get you and what they're going to cost you. Mm -hmm. And the names on it were insane. Of course, Billy Sheehan was on there. And mm -hmm. I'm like, Billy. Um, guitar players, drummers, the whole thing. So we built the first man the first time. We had um, Phil X as our um, guitar player who was playing with Bon Jovi. But he fell through the week before. So we got Tracy Guns, which is, you know, I grew up on those guys back in the 80s. And he was just really the good. The, what I was saying earlier, those guys have never heard anything like this before. Like if, even Billy Sheehan. And they were just blown away. Hmm. Um, and I remember when it was going to go public, I was like, well, 51 percent of people are positive and 49 are negative on it. OK, that's a win. And I think there's just been a couple of negative things. I think I've only read one post on a YouTube thing saying, you know, this is the whitest steel drum band we've ever seen. <laughs> and I thought it was going to really turn into something like that. But I think if mm. maybe I have a little street cred, but the people that know me and especially my friends in Trinidad, I think they know where I'm coming from with it. Um, like just the whole, I don't want to say integrity is a, is a, um, a deep word, but maybe more of the intention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, um, so, um, and, and so I think all, I think everything happened for a reason like that, because 15 years ago, if I would have done this, I would have been a pan pirate and I would have been crucified where the art form was. So mm. I think in 2005, crucified by I, who do you think by the, by the art form there were, I mean, mm. uh, it hasn't been until maybe the last 10 years that people that I think like outside of Trinidad pan players and taken the instrument to use it as their voice whatever their voice is like jonathan scales mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he's playing pan but he's a saxophone player and he's got a whole sound and he just chose the pan to be his voice mm -hmm. i'm kind of doing that with rock music I, i'm playing rock music my dream band is to be in a steel drum rock band so that just is kind of my voice up until i think these days with what everyone's doing and branching out with different musics with the pan was Either you were a Calypso guy or you were mm -hmm. like a badass jazz guy, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and um, not a lot of in between. And I think the instrument has grown so much that, you know, you're going to start hearing more ballets, maybe a whole soundtrack to a movie with Pan or, mm -hmm. you know, just, just the whole legitimacy of the art form. And, the, you know, it being the instrument that's just, you know, we're, I think we're getting closer to it, not being such a novelty anymore. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the things, one of the reasons I said, like, generosity, when you, you, I think you use the word, like, your integrity is important, and what, yeah, that street cred of, like, people who know you, and, and, and I'm curious, moving forward, like, you know, any criticism, I found in my experience, the criticism I get about using microtonal steel drums, for example, in so percussion, I have one lead pan that's tuned up a quarter tone from mm -hmm. A440, so it's A559 and a half or something. Well, okay. And so when I put it, when I play two lead pans, like double seconds, I now have every quarter step between every pitch. Okay. C, C quarter known, C sharp, C sharp quarter tone. Whoa, okay. D, D quarter tone, E flat, E flat quarter tone sharp. Like, <laughs> and so it's like, whoa. Like you have every, well, not every pitch, but you now have another it's step. All the semitones, yeah. Right. Wow. You know, and it's awesome. And when you pair that with marimba and vibraphone and other things, it's just super weird. Um, uh -huh. Really, the only criticism I've gotten from anybody has not been, it's been from 
white people not in steel bands. Like, like it's mostly been people not in the in the pan world. Everybody in the pan. I mean, they, listen, I don't think Trinidadians love microtonal pan and Steve Mackey's music with so percussion. <laughs> but, but, and I know for a fact Cliff Alexis didn't. But he was always just like, "You're doing work." You know, that was his like that was his sign for like I don't like what you're doing, but you're doing something good. So that's fine. Like, <laughs> you know. Well, that was the thing with me with Cliff. For years I thought I didn't know him, but I never thought he liked me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Cause he can be very intimidating. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he would see me at basic and then when he finally saw the Pan Rocks, I guess he liked the band um Emerson Lake and Palmer or something mm-hmm. like yeah. that. So so he he was cool with me, but I never I, I just chalked it up that he hated what I did. But he he saw the positive in it. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Ellie really didn't like it, but he saw the positive in it. Ellie just wanted to hear classical music on band. Mm-hmm. That's why he mm-hmm. was tuning pans the way he was, because mm-hmm. he heard it as he heard classical music yeah. with his voices, right? Or that's what he used to always say. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I, I think I'm with you on that. I remember being in the African drum community for a few years, and that's a whole deeper thing mm-hmm. than the steel pan thing as you probably are aware and it was never african guys my my friends from guinea or senegal it was always the, the american guys mm-hmm. and, and understandably so i totally get it um so but yeah it was never you know khalid or these guys it was you know, a dude from brooklyn or the, some something. the people telling some me partner. yeah the people telling me that i'm doing something wrong with pan are generally the people who have the least amount of authority on pan, <laughs> like, or right. the least, like they've never spent, like, have you ever had bacon shark? Oh, you haven't? Oh, yeah. No, not oh, you. Yeah. I'm saying like, if somebody could, it's like, no, it's fine. I agree. Maybe you don't like, Mike. have you ever had bacon shark? Oh, you haven't? Cool. Talk to me when you yeah. have, then we can chat. Right. Have you ever had an apple J with doubles? Oh, you haven't? Cool. You're welcome to your opinion. But I have, and I've had it hundreds of times with people who have also heard me. They're from Trinidad and they maybe just, shake your head and walk away. Cause that's sometimes what they do, but they, there's a difference between light, not liking something and not liking someone. And I feel like Trinidadians yeah. have a very, their, their scalpel is sharp on that front. Like cliff can be like, I do not like what you're doing. You are totally fine. <laughs> you know, yeah, they can and, compartmentalize those things yeah. up here. You, you're either this or that. Um, and we're just living in some weird times anyway, but um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Well, let me ask you, Trace, just to, to wrap up here. Um, what What is – so Pan Rocks has had – I've seen you, you you did the the mass band thing. I think uh, once the quarantine started, there was a – I don't know how many players you got total. You were shooting for 1,000? Well, the first thing we did was – the Pan Rocks thing we did with Perkins was – I thought I'd have 20. I think we got 110 from eight different countries. Mm-hmm. But with the Pan Rocks thing, it what it led was what I ultimately wanted to do. And I was like, well, it's quarantine. Let's uh, – I want to get a 1,000 Pan players from around the country who can I do this with. And then that's when I called Yuko and Mia because mm-hmm. I, I know Yuko. And um, I think after that, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm good enough to be in the room with these ladies because they're just <laughs> badass. Yeah, yeah. You know, in every way. They're like super better and smarter than I am on everything. And I called them and gave them my idea and they were right on board. And what we thought might've been a month project turned out to be a six month project. And I've done enough of these now that like I was saying before, you you don't even know how you're going to get to the end game. But dude, after that conversation with them one week talking to Mia and Yuko, 
three or four days later, Boogsy was on board to arrange the music. Two or three days later, the music was done. And things just unfold and then you just have to hang on. But then we were fighting with shutdowns and mm-hmm. all, you know, the thousand people was just not going to be a thing. And we had already announced we we're going to have a thousand pan players. Mm-hmm. So for us to nail about 700 from 23 countries to give their time to a, and we told Boogsy, dude, three minute song, easy. The first piece of music he sent us was nine minutes. <laughs> So he Sounds got pretty. it down to six and a half minutes. We're like, okay, fair enough. This is yeah. awesome. But for people to go out of their way to learn, you know, six and a half minutes worth of music and, you know, to take the time to be a part of that was uh, a really cool thing. And and that's what I felt Pan Rocks is good now with the Pan and Unity thing, which, and I hope we still do some work. We have some plans with what we want to do. Then my little Pan Rocks thing is just kind of could be an umbrella or a part of that mm. because now the Pan and Unity thing is, what the ultimate dream is, is to get pan players from all over the world to come together. If the world opens back up, maybe we can do a pan and unity concert on the back of the Yokohama steel drum fest. Mm. And then, Hey Josh, man, we're having this festival over there. Maybe kind of figure out how to get people from the States into Europe over there for everyone, just to give people an experience. Cause that's what I found out. I didn't plan this, but the, um, the pan rocks things that I do out in LA, I can't pay for people to come out there. People do that on their own dime. I can make their life a lot easier with setting up everything. But basically I'm just trying to create the best experience they can have because they're giving me their time and they're spending their money. And it's just like, you want to hang out with Mike Portnoy for three days and play some music with this guy and put him on your resume and fuck. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they want to do that. So until I can pay people or whatever, this is kind of how we have to roll. And um, just to give people some life experiences. And the thing with the pan and unity with that whole thing, whole started with the, you know, George Floyd thing, the COVID thing, this America's just going freaking insane. Cause everyone's just, we're just living in weird times. Mm-hmm. What better way to, to present people what unity can be with 23 different countries coming together and playing pan making sure everybody knows it's coming from Trinidad and Tobago, that it's Afrocentric out of the Caribbean islands. Mm-hmm. And then you're seeing Japan and New Zealand and, you know, South America and all that. And we were just hoping it was going to set an example for just to get some people to think, you know, you know what I mean? Cause mm-hmm. there's not a lot of thinking going on. So that was kind of like my grand, you know, I don't want to be too political about it, but just, just to like get people to like start thinking straight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, is it's so moving forward. Is this mission like what's the next sort of project that Pan and Unity and Pan Rocks is is going to uh, you know put out? Well, Pan Rocks, I'm not sure. Um, there might be another virtual thing going. Um, I'm going to have a chat with Hugo and Mia. We said that we would chat after um, the Phase Two thing. Um, mm-hmm. Boogsy had hired me to mix and master their concert, which is he liked the way it came out. So I've been in the studio doing a lot of that. So. They're really, really busy, but we, we've talked about a few things and we really enjoyed working with each other. Um, it seems that our three talents, like Yuko dots every I and crosses every T. And I'm not that guy, but I, you know, I'm saying whatever we all three do, we do. It's just, it, it was really a great experience working with those ladies. Awesome. Um, I see, I see Pan and Unity festivals, man. Mm. Um, all over the world. I, I, it has to be international. Um, 
I, I would love to see, I forget what it's called, but you might've seen it on YouTube. There's this group, I think they're out of Italy and they get like a thousand people and they'll do a three or four day camp in the middle of the woods somewhere mm-hmm. in the Alps. And then they'll come out and play like smells like teen spirit with like a thousand people. Mm-hmm. I see that with pan, mm-hmm. you know, have like this thing that could be a part of it. But, um, with the pan rocks thing, you're seeing my ADHD going all over the place. My thing is like, if I can get pan rocks, say if we can get stationed in a Vegas show and then have a torn show like stomp, then we could do like a Caribbean Christmas show where we could do a big band show. And imagine if we were doing big band music and Victor was our guy, our guest artist for like a month. Mm-hmm. And then the Celine Dion people see him play instead of taking a violin player on tour. Then they were like, we want Victor. And now you have a steel pan on a stage with Celine. Or, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. That's my whole big vision. And then to give pan players a gig other than playing margaritaville in florida or a teaching gig if they don't want to teach right after school mm-hmm. the dance modern dance ballet they all have it but to have some kind of world kind of thing that we can set up for pan players so they can get paid they can get insurance the whole kind of thing that that's like the big dream of all this and then just have this amazing show that you would go see um and then have a production team and have maybe have a school with people coming up through it mm. but um if we had a caribbean christmas show in vegas you know you could hire a all your friends from Trinidad and they can be, you know, give them a gig, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this sounds to me, I mean, listen, nobody's working right now. So now's the time to, to scheme and plot about this stuff. Like don't, don't wait around until things are back opened up and every, every hall's filled, you know, like this is the oh, time. No, we're working get, on yeah. it. It's just one thing at a time. Oh, and yeah, I'm a no. one man guy. I wish I had a team. But, yeah. um, <laughs> well, yeah. that, that sounds, I mean, just, I don't know. Let, I mean, I, I do want to apologize to you, Tracy. I think, um, there is, you did reach out to me for a pan rocks thing years ago and hmm. there was something was so, I just could not, the, and I believe it was in Hawaii. Oh yeah. That never happened. That was going to be the big Mark Schumann thing. That was going to yeah. be a big thing too. man. And there was something, anyway, it just, I could not figure it out with my schedule and I just wanted you to know that I wanted to do it, but I did uh-huh. not commit. And I apologize if that, uh, you know, we're on the same team, just sometimes it doesn't work out. And I hope that in the future, um, we can work out to play together in the same room again. Uh, the last time we were in the same room was uh, Port of Spain, Trinidad. So, you know. Yeah, dude, that's totally fine. You didn't have to say that. Um, and I'm totally cool with, I, I get everybody has a life and their thing. So none of that stuff ever bothers me. And if I can get people on certain shows, my, the problem I have now is I have such a Rolodex, like the thing I'm doing with mm. these guys in LA, I got together like a dozen pan players. When it comes out, like we did the thing with Portnoy Live in um, Los Angeles last year, I know a couple of people's feelings got hurt because they're like, damn, man, why what now? They gave me 10 people. So now I have that problem, which is a good problem to have, but I just, I want 100 people every time, but... (laughs) You know, that yeah. doesn't happen. Funding. We need to get sponsors from oil companies like they do in Trinidad. I think if, uh, you know, I'd feel less, I'd have less an, a, a antagonism towards the oil industry in the United States if steel bands were funded by, by oil money like they are in Trinidad. We should just all move to Houston and just hit them all up. Man, just, <laughs> so we can, why don't you and I start an offshore offshore drilling rig and then we can, we'll, anyway, well right. that's for the they next podcast. They need tax write-offs, man. They have to have a tax write-off. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Their tax write-off. 
Uh, well, Tracy, this has been really great. I, I've stolen an hour and six minutes of your time. I appreciate you doing this. Um, and it's no, just, I appreciate you having me. It's good to catch up. And I, you know, I've been lamenting with everybody that this is sad that this is the only way that we can connect. But I hope in the future we can get together and and have dinner and catch up and, and chew some more fat face to face. Oh, that'll happen. And the, and the positive thing about what we're doing now is like everyone's in our same position. So mm-hmm. I've told a lot of people, it's like, you know, Perkins is my hero from Jane's Addiction. Guy's not doing anything. So I can call him up. Perkins, you want to do something? He's like, yeah. You know, so so um, you can still cultivate these relationships that might be harder to do when we're not in these kind of times. Mm-hmm. So when it does open back up, you've got these relationships going and you can build on them. So um, so if anyone's out there not reaching out to people, like you were saying earlier, now is the exact time because no one's doing shit. <laughs> Well, what's your what, what's your website where folks can find your find your work? Um, the, I just tell everyone to go to panrocks.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, I have all my CDs on there. Um, my newest CD is free. You know, they can make a donation. No one buys music anymore. But I did a surf CD with a pickup to let everyone know that you can have one tenor pan, one insole pan pickup, and a whammy pitch shifter and sound like a full steel drum band. I cut everything with a st- tenor mm. pan. Um but um, awesome. yeah, Awesome, man. Well, I'll send fo- folks that way. Um, in the meantime, please stay health and safe, healthy and safe. And I, I, I hope to cross paths again soon, man. Uh, it'll be sooner than later, man. So. I hope so. Maybe in Trinidad. Let's 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 have our first reunion be in Phase's yard in Trinidad. I feel like there that would go. be. If a I am in New York, I'll ignore you until. We're right. In yeah. Please do. Just walk right by me and just <laughs> avoid. Me. You. <laughs> All right, I'll man. Wait for Trinidad, but that sounds like a plan. <laughs> All righty. Take it easy and be healthy. Okay. Hi, brother. You too. All right. See you. Bye. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy. Dunleavypans.com. D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on. Uh, and so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check him out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mangochowclothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you.